Today, I'm in discussion with Fred Sharman about his book Space Forces on space, architecture and politics. I'm Kieran O'Meara and you're listening to The Pollitt Podcast. Oh, I like all the stuff. I mean, Star Trek has Star Trek has better politics, of course, but um, <laughs> you know, it, it's. It, it, I think science fiction is is a great way for thinking, like you know, yeah. outside of current realities, and, and um, but also, you know, I love science fiction for the aesthetics. I, I still also love you know the cool hardware and spaceships and stuff, same as I did when I was eight years old. You know, yeah, I'm the same. And, um, <laughs> and even in Star Wars, you know. Star Wars eventually when you get older you, you go like okay you know why does this universe have to have like slaves and why what's going on <laughs> with like all this weird you know just just acceptance of these these fundamentally messed up you know political conditions and and you go ah well the spaceships are still cool <laughs> we can always count on the Millennium Falcon being cool yeah <laughs> which is true yeah. <laughs> today I'm in discussion with Fred Sharman about his most recent book, Space Forces, A Critical History of Life in Outer Space, published with Verzo Press. Today we're going to be having a discussion about space, politics, architecture, and how all three of them interconnect. So Fred Sharman teaches architecture and urban design at Morgan State University's School of Architecture and Planning. He is the co-founder of the Working Group on Adaptive Systems, an art and design consultancy based in Baltimore, Maryland. His first book, Space Settlements, was published in 2019, and his writing has been published by City Lab, Slate, Log, Volume, and Domus. And before we begin, I'd just like to say that if you enjoy today's episode, if you enjoyed this interview, please, please, please like, share, follow, and subscribe on social media and whatever platform you're listening to. It will mean the world. Okay, let's begin. So I have with me here Fred Sharman. Thank you ever so much for coming on the podcast, Fred. Thanks for the invitation, Karen. No worries, no worries. So our first question is, how do you conceptualize or grasp the very concept of space? That's a tough thing to get your head around, isn't it? I mean, when we're talking about um, outer space, anywhere that's not Earth, that's like the whole rest of the universe. You know, and at scale, Earth is this tiny little speck, and it's everything we've known. And how to put one label on, like, everything that is not that speck is a really weird, like, ontological trick, isn't it, when you think about it? Um, so I, you know, one way that that was really helpful for me to get a sense of that, like, crazy scale and um, that to sort of measure or feel, you know, the infinite a little bit was to do it. I had the chance to, to sort of walk it and, and learn it in the body uh, back in 2015. I was uh, able to create this temporary installation in Baltimore that was a scale model of the solar system uh, at a scale of one to 2.8 billion. And uh, so this, and I, and I worked with, I collaborated with nine artists to do the nine planets, you know, taking the position that Pluto's still a planet, of course. And uh, the sun was an 18 inch sphere. It was a solar powered, like nightlight thing. And um, earth was about half a block away. And it was about the size of a piece of pea gravel at this scale. 
and Pluto was a mile and a half further south from the intersection where the sun was posted. So to, to be, and it was a basically a speck of lint, a tiny, tiny, you know, smaller than sand, a tiny, tiny um, infinitesimal thing. And so to, to walk that, and I gave tours. So, uh, you know, I, I would offer people the chance to have a walking tour of the whole solar system. And to, to feel that in your bones is really an amazing thing. And, and what I'm thinking about, you know, as I'm doing like this writing and research and working on other projects, you know, I often sort of drift back to that, that experience of walking through the solar system and getting the sense of just how big everything really, really is. And of course, that's only the beginning. You know, the next nearest star, Proxima Centauri, would be if we kept going south along the line through Baltimore, um, would have been just past the South Pole. So, I mean, nobody's walking that, right? Um, so, and that's just the nearest star. So the size of the galaxy would have scaled up to the size of the solar system in the model. That means to leave the Milky Way galaxy, I would have had to leave the solar system with my walking tour. So um, it's just, it, it's just, a, it's been an incredible exercise that I keep returning to again and again to get a sense of that scale. Yeah, no, leaving the <laughs> leaving the solar system with a walking tour. I don't think they do buses back from the edge of that, do they? <laughs> okay, that's a good answer. It's a good answer. I love that. So my second question is, um, in Space Force's A Critical History of Life in Outer Space, one of the things you try to look at is um, uh, sort of how politics and architecture intersect with space. Can you sort of uh, uh, elucidate a little bit why this is significant? I like your conflation there of politics and architecture as two things that belong side by side implicitly in your question. Uh, and I, I think that's it's an important uh, thing to recognize is, is how politics is built into architecture generally. Um, and architecture can reinforce certain kinds of politics. When we build spaces, we're implicitly uh, creating the kinds of people who should be there, right? Whether we're talking about public space, private space, commercial space, civic space, space creates its own subject. Um, and that's just a, a, in a general way. That's whether we're speaking about you know, architecture on that tiny speck of earth or architecture somewhere outside of it. And I think in space beyond earth, um, what is necessary to keep in mind about both architecture and politics is the way they involve explicit structuring of our daily lives. And in a place where there is nothing that is for the human. There's nothing that is for any kind of human existence, right? There's no invitation or production of a human subject in a place like the moon. It's completely alien. Um, we have to bring those structures, those, those, uh, those modes of, of sort of giving order to experience with us. We have to bring those along with us. And whether that's making a habitat that will enable us to survive or, or building a kind of society that will enable us to relate to one another and to that hostile exterior environment, it's going to have to be an intentional act. So that's another place where I think architecture and politics are really deeply interconnected because in order to build that structure, you have to state your goals and your priorities right from the start or else, you know, nothing's going to hold together. Yeah, no, interesting. Interesting. So I, if you wouldn't mind, would you be able to unpack a quote for us? Um, so this is from uh, Highest and Best Use, Subjectivity and Climates uh, Off and After Earth. Uh, so you say uh, an environment like the International Space Station 
is almost totally constructed to suit human needs. Here, more than anywhere else, we have made an image of our own Umwelt. Every parameter of the environment here is explicitly debated, designed, and built, end quote. Would you be able to unpack that for us, like what, mm -hmm. you, what you're getting at there? Yeah, I think that's a that's kind of a great follow-up to what we were just saying earlier about architecture and politics, because one of the things that is is fascinating about uh, working in the field of architecture and the in the built environment fields is that nothing can be sort of taken for granted. You find that you are responsible for um, specifying the nature of every every surface, every material, every opening, every passageway, every uh, every quality in the space, including things like you know the air. Right there, in the in the United States at least, there are um, there are enforceable, you know, OSHA, uh, occupation of uh, safety and health. Uh, excuse me, I stumbled a bit, of forgetting what OSHA actually stands for, occupational safety and health administration. Well, anyway, there are workplace laws that say if your office is too warm or too cold then you don't legally have to be there. You can, you can leave, it's a hostile environment. So the specification and the design of the air itself is also something that you know, the built environment disciplines take responsibility for, the humidity, the, the rate at which it moves, its temperature. Um, I'm fascinated by environments like the International Space Station because nothing can be taken for granted. Everything has to be um, explicit and specified to a much higher degree. Like right now, for instance, I'm sitting in my office in Baltimore. It's about 81 or 82 degrees outside. Here in my office, it's about 76, 77. I've got a ceiling fan going. Um, I'm borrowing heat energy from you know the outside environment of a Baltimore early summer afternoon. And the International Space Station, that layer between, you know, this sort of interface between an interior and an exterior becomes all the more important and your explicitness about what you want to take in and what you want to reject becomes crucial to you know life safety so um i think it's it's a strange it ends up being a strange and fascinating reflection of our own priorities when we examine environments like the space station that are so um there's, they're just such fragile bubbles in this world that, again, has nothing, you know, for us unless we think about it clearly. It's a little bit of a rambly response. I apologize. But... No, that's a great response. I love it. <laughs> I love it. That's really interesting about sort of like air regulation. I think that I think that's sometimes missed as well Is sometimes I think when we're standing in uh, uh, particular buildings or just in particular spaces, I think we sometimes forget that even if it's public space, that it is designed, right? And that means that the, it's had to go through a process. And that process can itself sort of fall on uh, uh, discussions that have previously taken place in the public sphere itself. So I think that's really cool. I think that's really cool to kind of reflect on. Yeah, and thank you for, for uh, unpacking that quote. And um, uh, so leading on from this, um, when I was reading uh, Space Forces, one of the things that I get, somehow kept returning to me, I don't know why, uh, was actually a line by Kant. Um, which is from the crooked timber of humanity, no straight thing was ever made. So one of the questions I'd like to ask on the back of that is, is human life in space always corrupted by human epistemologies of that space? 
or you know is the making of human life in space always an extrapolation or human reproduction of human first principles mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. i i've learned a lot in this regard from um people who are working in other fields like astronomy and anthropology especially um there's a scholar lucien walkowitz who is an astronomer and an astrobiologist who has a great kind of uh, phrase that captures this problem, I think, really well. Uh, they say that everything that happens in space happens on Earth. And I think you can, you can, you know, take that and sort of play with it and rearrange it and say, you know, what we don't want to happen in space shouldn't happen on Earth, probably. What we want to happen on Earth maybe should happen in space. Things like, you know, sustainability and closed loop environmental strategies and things like cooperative, you know, social structures. So um, Lucien's quote is really, uh, I think, helpful for me because it, it makes me remember that that there there is there's not this sort of sudden switch where once you leave the atmosphere, go you know what is it a hundred miles up to whatever the fuzzy legal definition of the edge of space is, where you know all of a sudden history and politics and um, and you know are kind of the weight you know that the the, the epistemological weight you know that we carry with us as humans or that we that we bring with us that, that, that doesn't leave us behind when we go into orbit so um there's a, there's a deep interconnection between the way we think about worlds in general and the way we transfer ideas from how you know we want to structure things here on earth and how we might structure them elsewhere in space or elsewhere um in time and i also really appreciate the work of um an anthropologist named lisa Masseri who has embedded herself with people who do things like study the nature of the surfaces of other planets, other planets in the solar system and other planets outside of, of our solar system. And what Lisa's work reminds us of, um, and I think the work of anthropologists in general, is that that construction of another space always takes place in really specific spaces here on Earth. There's not this sort of, um, uh, untouched you know laboratory environment that's free of social relations in which we think about the future uh there's not this sort of blank white room right everybody in that room has their own past and their own background their own specificity and personhood and everything about the space where they think about space is also important because intentionally or not the nature of the space in which other spaces are conceived gets reproduced or affects those ideas about an ideal or a possible future you know which is to say um you know who is designing the future which is you know again something that we ask ourselves in the built environment professions all the time who is who's at the community meeting who's at the conference table what do they look like what are their backgrounds are they reflective and inclusive of the kinds of people who they are making space for so I, I really appreciate, in particular, uh, the work of Walkowitz and, and Masseri for reminding us of that specificity. And that's a really, really good answer. I think that that grasp of, as you say, that the construction of space always takes uh, a place on Earth through sort of like Earthling social relations. <laughs> and, and all I, the imperfections and problems and, and yeah. hiccups that could go along with that, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I I always think there's something kind of, um, uh, I, I wouldn't necessarily go 
overly poetic and say there's something beautiful about that but i think there is still something rather beautiful about that that we simply it's almost as if humans are always chasing ourselves chasing tales you know it's it, we, we can't sort of get away from ourselves and our own space which i think is really fascinating okay so um uh, one of the things on sort of like a methodological point that i wanted to ask you um was what drew you to writing a critical history yeah i think um you know it, it there's a long answer and a short answer to that. And, and the, the short answer is kind of uh, what we were talking about a bit at the beginning about um, you know, wanting to, to say, okay, you know, the aesthetics are interesting. That, that's what draws you in. The ideas about the future and about design are obviously something you know, as, as a designer that, um, that drive me and that drive a lot of people that, that I like to talk with and read and be in dialogue with. But I think you know, it's that is just the starting point. What I like about design in general is that it's also about ideas and it's about the contexts and connections to the things around it. It's about material culture, it's about um, economics, it's about you know, the relationships that people have to each other and the relationships that people have to space and objects. And so um, putting these scenarios into context, for me, it started as an exercise in, in almost design history. Uh, I wrote a book and it was published in 2019 that was about this moment in the 1970s where people were really for the first time, you know, engaging with legit institutions like NASA and Stanford University and, and projecting, you know, plausible large scale human futures over the next hundred years uh, about space settlement. Space settlements is the name of that book. And that that for me started as, you know, I'm, I have a positionality, you know, I have a background, I have a, I have a certain education and a certain cultural, you know, uh, world that I come from, and that's, that's design and teaching design and design history. And so, so I approach that from a perspective of, of design history that starts with, hey, there's all these cool pictures, but what are these pictures really about? Why were they made at this time? Why do they show what they show? What was the expected audience for them? and what are the characteristics of the people who made them and so that was an examination of a particular moment in the mid 1970s in 1975 you know really kind of uh, a rich sort of uh linchpin in in world history and what i realized midway through working on that book was that this could be a kind of useful method in general for examining several other moments along you know a bigger timeline so what began as an exercise in really in a really specific in looking at a really specific moment in design history, what I got out of that was a set of tools that I could then apply to all these other stories going back into the late 19th century um, with the Russian cosmists, which is where I kind of identify a zero point when plausibility and speculation came together, when the technical possibility was proven, along with these sort of utopian um, social ideas all the way up to um, where we find ourselves now in the early 21st century with this sort of big explosion of, of new and different and more privatized models for going to space and exploring space and living in space. So, so what I did was I sort of broke that down into seven stories that I wanted to tell along the way using this method and this toolkit of putting things into context, asking, you know, what was the nature of the key figures, what did they believe about worlds in general, and how that inform their ideas about the future? 
what was their history and background and what was happening, you know, in the world that affected these ideas too. So what started as a really specific, you know, exercise in design history really became like a, a whole, and that's, that's why, you know, um, Leo Hollis, my editor at Verso, and I, we, we narrowed in on this notion of a critical history of life in outer space. And I liked it a lot because in my world, you know, critical means so many different things. We, we can, you know, critique in order to interrogate and learn, you know, in a kind of dialectic sense. Um, but we can also, we also critique the things we love. We, we, can, we critique things in order to take them apart, but we also critique things in order to make them better. Um, and so, you know, as somebody who, who, again, is coming from design cultures, I love that 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 notion of a critical history captures for me both senses of the word. Yeah, interesting. Interesting. Uh, well, I remember when I when I was reading it, I remember thinking to myself that it was such a it was such a pleasure to read because of this very sort of clear methodology that I think you have. Um, uh, and as I say, it, it read um, uh, on such a, a, an intimate level or of, of, on, on a level that isn't normally um, uh, sort of discussed. And uh, so, yeah, I, I, I really commend you <laughs> for that because it was just so gripping as a book just to read, as I say, and the methodology itself, I think, is such a large part of that. So um, one of the things that I wanted to build off of, which is something you just said, is um, uh, looking at the cosmists and sort of more recent uh, iterations of life in outer space. So one of the questions I wanted to ask was, is there a link between the cosmists and entrepreneurs like Jeff Bezos? I think that's a really complicated question. And in some ways, um, that's one of the that's one of the projects of the book is to trace out, you know, these sort of underground threads that do connect, uh, if not directly, you know, from from kind of direct transfer of ideas from person to person to person, um, at least, you know, following the way things end up rhyming or resonating with one another over time, that ideas about, you know, for instance, Jeff Bezos's fascination with these big rotating habitats is the same kind of worldview about a future in space that Gerard O'Neill, who was working in this time in the 1970s had. And it turns out that Bezos was, of course, a fan of Gerard O'Neill's and, and would go to his lectures when Bezos was a student at Princeton. Um, but there's not a direct connection between Bezos, say, and a figure like Konstantin Tsiolkovsky, who was um, the inventor of the rocket equation, the inventor of the math that could prove that liquid-fueled, sometimes multi-stage rockets could actually lift things into orbit successfully. Um, but he was also this kind of mystic that was invested in ideas about an indefinite, infinite human future in space that involved all kinds of weird things like immortality and um, the material kind of agency of subatomic particles and things like that. He had these really interesting mystical ideas too. But um, if you asked, if you sat down, I think someone like Konstantin Tsiolkovsky and was able to ask him, you know, why we go to space. And I think his answers would resonate with the answers that we would get from someone like Jeff Bezos, that, that you know, Bezos is, is an idealist and that he believes that, that more and more of humanity, more and more of human culture is an unallied good on its own terms and for its own sake. And I think that was uh, part of 
Konstantin Slokovsky's worldview too, that um, things like hunger and want and injustice and exploitation, if we just make more of everything, that all of that would work itself out. And you know, Bezos talks about uh, a, a, a future human culture in space that is like one trillion individuals, one trillion human individuals. And he'd say that would give us, you know, a thousand Mozarts and a thousand Einsteins and a thousand, you know, of every great um, figure that had ever lived. And, you know, I can't help but wonder if, if we, if human culture hasn't had, you know, thousands of Mozarts and Einsteins, but maybe they all died in hunger in countries where, um, where economic development failed or was not, um, was not able to, uh, was not able to be deployed. Uh, you know, were they, the, or were they victims of exploitation and capitalism? The same kind of uh, uh, indefinite, you know, model that Bezos wants to extend into the universe. I don't know. Um, the The other interesting thing about cosmism that shows up is is immortality. And for Konstantin Tsiolkovsky's teacher Nikolai Fedorov, who was a, a Russian librarian and uh, um, scholar. That Tsiolkovsky studied under the what he saw as quote the common task and this was part of this is central to cosmist ideology what he saw as the the essential nature of the common task of humanity the thing that all science should be working towards would be the eventual physical resurrection and immortality of every human being who ever lived so for Fedorov this was the sort of ultimate justice that could be applied to human history to make everything right, to just bring everybody back to life and let them live forever. And for Fedorov, going to space was only a sort of incidental consequence of, of that task is that, okay, well, we need places for all these people to live. So obviously they can't all live in earth. So we need to go out into space. We'll figure that out later, right? Um, for, you know, other people, entrepreneurs, you know, doesn't quite capture it, oligarchs, billionaires, um, people like, Elon Musk and his sometime friend and sometime ally, Peter Thiel, uh, that connection to going into space is also tied with, with aspirations about living forever. I mean, we, we have this kind of what I think of as a corporate cosmism um, that is resurgent, you know, here in the early 21st century that says, well, you know, for at least, you know, this historical moment, it might seem possible that we could go to space and live forever, but only for the very wealthy, right? So there's this change in, in attitude between the why and the how here. You know, the, the original Russian cosmists saw history as a series of, of, you know, injustices and breakdowns, and they wanted to make that right and take everybody into space and let everybody live forever if they wanted to. Whereas here we find ourselves at a historical moment where it's more a set of personal goals for these vastly wealthy and powerful men to create the cosmos reality, but only for themselves and for people like them, which I think is really fascinating too. Yeah, I love that corporate cosmism. <laughs> I think that's brilliant. And that's a brilliant way of putting it actually is fantastic. And I think that also broadly kind of interconnects with the whole sort of development of neoliberalism in mm -hmm. in sort of um uh, uh, i don't know how you'd call it earthly politics <laughs> mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um but yeah no i think that's a brilliant answer that's really really interesting yeah really fascinating 
All right. So one of my love, one of my last questions I have for you is: um, To what extent does teleological thinking play a part in our grasp of the human role in space? And that kind of connects back to what you were talking about with uh, the cosmists. Yeah, I mean that's that's really uh, the the idea of the common task is is such a staggeringly simple and yet like completely absurd utopian notion that. Um, it's still hard to grapple with today because it, it asks those ultimate questions about teleology. What is this all for? Um, and I can only imagine what it must have been like to be in the late 19th century in Russia, you know, this decaying empire, pre-revolutionary empire, um, to see advances in science, to see advances in medicine um, and in philosophy and theory and go, okay, what is this all headed towards? And to come to a conclusion so simple and blunt and you know frankly hard to refute uh is 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 just a wild thing it's it's kind of like there's an element of the sublime about it when you think about an infinite human future with every person who ever lived resurrected and able to be immortal the ultimate teleology the question of teleology is i think another really interesting lens to view all of these projects through um you know for the Soviets, the, the question of teleology had one answer. It had dialectical materialism leading inevitably to Marxist socialism. And when the Soviets were thinking about what would life in space be like, or what would, you know, what would other cultures that we might encounter out in space be like, there's this fascinating reversion to, well, of course they'll be Marxist, because that is the inevitable, you know, process of history drives every culture towards Marxist socialism. It's one of the, the, the things I find really fascinating about Marxism is this, at least in the early 20th century, the sense of inevitability. Um, but of course, you know, history itself played out in much more complicated ways, at least so far on Earth. So when, when Soviet writers like Alexander Bogdanov, early Soviet science fiction writer, when he's thinking about an advanced society on Mars, he's using that advanced society to critique the current state of earthly politics because Obviously, if they're older, their thinking has gone, you know, in further down the inevitable road that all of our political thinking must go. And they're doing a better job of creating a culture and a politics and a world, material world, than earthly humans, even these, these sort of struggling early Marxist revolutions are managing to do. So he uses Mars to kind of critique the state of things on Earth. And he arrives at this like really interesting conclusion, which I think is 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 all the more interesting when viewed through this lens of teleology. Uh, briefly, Bogdanov's Martians, when they discover that Earth is inhabited, they contemplate coming and taking over because, of course, you know, we humans are in this miserable state of political struggle and it, there's going to be much more bloody times before we uh, end up, you know, in this ideal state of Marxist socialism. And the, the real socialists on Mars need the resources anyway. So why shouldn't they just come and take us over? And what they decide, this is, you know, I, I hope I, I can't, the book is over 100 years old, so I can't really spoil it. But what they decide is they have this political debate and they, they say, no, you know what, let's not do that. Because the world isn't a monolith and teleology isn't inevitable. Their culture and their reality, their world is different than ours. And that has a value for its own sake. So the the Martians kind of decide that, that teleology is not, you know, a kind of 
strange attractor that everybody will end up at, that it's worth sort of keeping track of this strange human experiment to see what they get out of it, to see what happens, to see what happens in the future. They re-embrace the idea of an uncertain future and they re-embrace the idea of the value of difference for its own sake. So I think it's a, that's another sort of just staggering, you know, conclusion to me. Um, and it sets up the terms of, of an interesting debate, I think, you know, that might, that we might imagine happening between someone like Bogdanov, who was uh, a biocosmist, who was a sort of late cosmist, and someone like Fedorov, who was the originator of, of the cosmos common task. And that what, what is, what is the eventual goal? Is it making things the same forever? Or is it going out and into this infinite universe, right? Remember the earth is just that tiny speck and there's so much more out there. Is it worth going out there in the spirit of hoping to find difference that is interesting and valuable for its own sake, rather than extending your own reality indefinitely out into infinity? And that's just a, a really, I, th I think just that dialectic is really fascinating to contemplate too. And you can see that, you know, even in microcosm in the in the terms of you know russian politics around the middle of the uh, around the the, the turn of the 20th century that was a beautiful answer to that question <laughs> that was excellent <laughs> thank you ever so much no it's really really fascinating really really fascinating it was interesting because when i was reading the book as well historical materialism was one of the things that sort of all you know dialectics broadly in a hegelian frame really was one of those things that i was thinking about of course, whenever talking about teleology. Okay. Um, uh, and it was just really interesting in many similar ways, you know, cogs in my mind were turning in very similar manner about this. And it's always fascinating to talk about teleology now, especially as mm. it's so um, uh, perhaps out of vogue, should I say, um, uh, to think in teleological frameworks um, mm. uh, in the contemporary world. So it's kind of fun to look at how I personally think how different vestiges of teleology kind of um, uh, affected different modes of human thinking. Mm -hmm. um, uh, in the past. So yeah, I think that's really cool. Okay, so one thing I normally ask all of my guests is the question of what is politics, but I would like to ask you a different question, which <laughs> is a much, much broader question, so I apologize for this, but um, I'd love to hear your thoughts on it. What is design? What is design? I mean, design in, in a way, I mean, maybe because we, we were just talking about teleology, it could relate it back to that. Design in a way is, is like living in the future and then back casting and working backwards from there to say, okay, what do we have to do now in order for that condition to exist in the future? Like I've gone to the future in which this thing exists and what is necessary now? What are the steps to sort of get us there? It's a bit, you know, a bit common tasky maybe, but um, the, the, goal for me you know what i think is is central to maybe the teleology of design is to is to want to think in that way uh to to sort of imagine a, a desirable future and work backwards to to now to get from here to there but on the other hand is that is that what we can do what the what the sort of the what the terms of design are um are things that mediate relationships between humans one to the other and to humans in the world, um, the world that they make, the world that they find themselves in, the worlds, plural, that, you know, might exist again in the future. So I, I keep going back to, and this is in the book, uh, it's a fantastic passage in um, 
an essay, really a rant, as she says in the title, a rant about technology by the science fiction writer Ursula Le Guin, whose parents were anthropologists, of course, and anthropology deeply uh, affected her worldview and her work as a writer. And Le Guin says that, that technology is the material, is the interface between people and the material world. And I think design is the, the process of creating desirable futures through refining and making those kinds of interfaces. If we think about design in those terms, then it's also an answer to your original question about what is politics. Politics is a technology for surviving the future. Politics is, is an interface between humans and the material world, between humans one to the other and between individual humans and, and groups of humans and their world. Again, the world that they find themselves in or the world that they make. Okay. One of my favorite things about doing this podcast is that I ask this question every time and I'm yet to get the same answer twice. <laughs> so technology for surviving the future. I love that. <laughs> That's brilliant. <laughs> That's going straight in the book. <laughs> love that. Okay. And then my very last question for you, Fred, is who would you recommend to read for anybody who wants to read more? Oh, that's a tough one. Um, you might stump the band. I might have to uh, turn my head here and, and look at my bookshelf. Um, certainly Le Guin, uh, you know, Le Guin in, in that same essay rant talks about how, you know, our, our scope of what we call technology is way too narrow than anything less complicated than, you know, a fighter jet or an aircraft carrier or a refrigerator or, or a computer. For some reason, we don't consider that to be technology. And of course, she encountered a lot of snobbery in science fiction circles because she wrote about things like poems and stories and myths and, um, and you know, everyday material culture of the worlds that she imagined and how those were technologies too. But of course, people think those are low or soft. So Le Guin's, you know, writing and, and books like the Left Hand of Darkness or The Dispossessed. Um, Le Guin's writing is, is just a terrific um, set of worlds to, uh, to think about technology and culture in, because again, you know, there's, she's informed by anthropology. So not just her nonfiction, um, which is still really well archived on the internet, but her fiction as well. Um, you know, for, for an architectural sense, I've been, um, yeah, that's tough. I, I, I'm a little bit stumped. There's, there's a great, uh, there's a great book on the work of Galina Balashova, who um, I didn't end up getting to say much about uh, Galina Balashova in my own book. Uh, I've done some bits of writing essay scale stuff that, that talk about her a little bit more, but she was really the first explicitly space architect. She was a, an architect who worked for the Soviet space program, what became Roscosmos in the 1960s. And she was recruited to design the interiors of the Soyuz spacecraft, which had this really, at the time, new kind of space in it, which was a place where the astronauts weren't strapped, or cosmonauts, of course, weren't strapped into their seats, you know, just sort of um, uh, you know, doing, getting carried in orbit. They had time to sort of float around and do work and really live for multiple days in space. So they had to create this sort of living room or home office, um, which in the Soyuz capsules is the, um, the orbital module. And she had to design the interior of this space in a way that was would would be comfortable and familiar for the cosmonauts who were, who were living and working there. And there's just really fascinating uh, results of that process. And she's, uh, 
she, you know, in, in this sort of oral history mode is, is talking about what she was trying to do when she was tasked with this job and what was at stake. And um, it's just an incredible kind of, uh, you know, hidden story that it wasn't even her work was top secret until the fall of the Soviet Union in 1991. So she didn't get like a lot of acclaim during her lifetime. She's still alive, but she's retired, of course. So yeah, Galina Balashova is a really fascinating person to read about. And, you know, I'll say uh, Ursula Le Guin. Okay, fantastic. <laughs> fantastic. Thank you ever so much. So thank you very much for coming on the Pollock podcast, uh, Fred Sharma. It's very nice to have you on. Thank you. Thanks a lot, Karen. It's great to talk with you. So you've been listening to me, Kieran O'Meara, on the Pollock podcast in discourse with Fred Sharman on space, architecture and politics. If you've liked this episode, don't forget to share it around social media, like, share, subscribe and follow whatever platform you're listening to this on. It would mean the absolute world to me, (laughs) of course. And don't forget to go to the website. There should be a link in the description box. And there you'll be able to find loads of content which doesn't become a podcast episode. So this was a fantastic episode to record. I could have spoken to Fred for literally hours. (laughs) Because space is something that's just simply so fascinating. But yeah, and remember, when you're in the mood for a think, think Pollitt at www.thinkpollitt.com. Thanks, guys. See you soon.